everyone, and welcome to a regular press conference on COVID-19 here from WHO headquarters in Geneva. We apologize for uh, this uh, delay. As we have announced uh, in our media advisory, we have some special guests that Dr. Tedros will introduce in a minute. I will just introduce our speakers here. Uh, beside Dr. Tedros, with us today are Dr. Mike Ryan, Dr. Maria Van Kerkhoff, Mr. Derek Walton, who is a legal counsel, uh, and uh, Dr. Mar Mariangela Simao, uh, Assistant Director General, Access to Medicines and Health Products. Uh, I will give the floor immediately to Dr. Tedros, and then we will have a question and answer session. Thank you. Thank you, Tariq. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Today, I'm really honored to be joined by President Carlos Alvarado Quesada of Costa Rica and President Sebastian Piñera of Chile for today's press conference or press briefing. Researchers are working at breakneck speed both to understand the virus and also to develop potential vaccines, medicines, and other technologies. The access to COVID-19 accelerator is uniting efforts on many fronts to ensure we have safe, effective, and affordable therapeutics and vaccines in the shortest time possible. These tools provide additional hope of overcoming COVID-19, but they will not end the pandemic if we cannot ensure equitable access to them. In these extraordinary circumstances, we need to unleash the full power of science to deliver innovations that are scalable, usable, and benefit everyone everywhere at the same time. Traditional market models will not deliver at the scale needed to cover the entire globe. Solidarity within and between countries and the private sector is essential if we are to overcome these difficult times. Now is the moment where leaders must come together to develop a new global access policy and an operational tool which will turn the many good intentions expressed in recent weeks into reality. We're seeing some good examples where companies are coming out with solidarity approaches, from open licensing and support to tech transfer via the new tech access partnership, to commitments not to increase prices in times of shortages. WHO recognized the wide-ranging efforts and initiatives aimed at incentivizing innovation while also ensuring access for all. This will be important topics next week at the World Health Assembly. At the beginning of the pandemic, President Alvarado asked me to set up a health technology repository for vaccines, medicines, diagnostics, and any other tool that may work against COVID-19. WHO has accepted this visionary proposal from His Excellency, President Alvarado, and will, in the next few weeks, launch a platform for open, collaborative sharing of knowledge, data, and intellectual property on existing and new health tools to combat COVID-19. So I'm happy to give the floor to our special guest, President Alvarado of Costa Rica to speak more about his proposal. Hermano, you have the floor. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Tidrus. Uh, mi hermano, my brother, thank you very much. I would also like to thank uh, President Piñera from Chile that's joining us, and also uh, President Moreno of Ecuador, who was the first one to support this uh, initiative we launched uh, months ago. Uh, what's the initiative about? Uh, I want to deep dive a little bit on, on it. Um, 
we want to create, and we propose to create a global pool, a repository uh, of intellectual property. And this is with uh, data, with knowledge, technologies, designs regarding COVID-19. And in this repository, the idea is to make available for everybody around the world the different advancements or innovations uh, to put those into service at the lowest cost uh, without any, any barriers to protect people. That's the idea behind, behind this. We are also calling for this to be a, a, a repository created on a voluntary basis because now we need solidarity. And that's uh, what it's, this is all about. Two months ago, when we launched this initiative, there were many things uh, we were not acquainted. Uh, we, we didn't know about, uh, uh, about COVID-19. And throughout those two months, there's so much knowledge and science created that it's been put to benefit of, uh, of people around the world. Uh, for one case, uh, yesterday I was in one university in Costa Rica in which they took some open, open source designs for uh, medical devices and actually they improved those to, with the knowledge locally developed on the treatment on COVID-19, they improved those. And now that university is putting the improved designs also available um, around the world. Those are the kind of things that we can do now based on, uh, on solidarity and understanding that this pandemic uh, attacks the same uh, a rich country than a poor country, than a mid-income country, uh, regardless or even in citizens, uh, regardless whether you have the resources or not, uh, it attacks people all around the world in, in the same way. So the basic idea is a call for solidarity and a call to action for creating this repository, a global pool for uh, rights on data, knowledge, technologies to make more affordable um, and accessible the new techniques, new technologies, new vaccines, new treatments, so we can, as one around the world, defeat covid uh, COVID-19. And the call is for member states or WHO. The call is also for the academia around the world. It's also for the private sector and companies, for research institutions, and for cooperation agencies all around the world on a voluntary basis. We want to see this, the, those innovations and technologies as global public goods global public goods to protect humanity against this threat. So it's a call for solidarity. As you mentioned, Dr. Tedros, this is going to be a part of the discussion in the, in the WHO conference next week. And we will be launching this call to action uh, on May 29th of this month. May 29th, we'll be uh, looking for the offic official launch. We're still open um, in this initiative to receive the support of more countries, and that's why we're so thankful for the leadership of uh, President Piñera uh, supporting this uh, joint effort, which I appreciate a lot. And going back to this is only together, only with multilateralism, only with though that kind of leadership, um, we can defeat coronavirus. Not closing um, in in nationalisms, not um, not being selfish. It's the time for the contrary. It's the time for solidarity. It's the time to to work together. Actually, it's an opportunity for humanity to show the best of what we are made of. And I think it's a great opportunity for humanity to to show our brotherhood as, as a whole. And um, that's what it's all about, this call to, to action that we, with also the leadership of Dr. Tedros, um, we are presenting today. And to you, Dr. Tedros, also to President Piñera and other partners, 
thank you for your leadership, particularly Dr. Tidrus, uh, my brother, mi hermano. We have to keep on with this uh, joint work together. And thank you very much for all what you've been doing. And thank you for supporting as well this initiative from Costa Rica. Muchas, muchas gracias, uh, hermano. Thank you, thank you so much, President Alvarado, uh, for that very, very inspiring speech. Uh, I have seen your commitment when we met in Geneva, and also the follow-up discussions we had, especially based on this initiative that you have just uh, proposed. So all my respect and appreciation for your commitment and leadership. And I would like to quote you. Using this initiative, you said, let's show the best of humanity. And I fully agree. And I join you in adding uh, my voice to that call and look forward to May 19 when we launch it officially. And many countries are already showing their commitment and I know May 19 will be a successful launching event. Muchas gracias for your leadership. And now I would like to request President Sebastian Piñera of Chile uh, to take the floor and to uh, give us his um, views on this uh, initiative. Your Excellency, you have the floor. Buenos días, director general. Voy a dirigir unas palabras a nombre de mi presidente, quien estuvo a la hora de conexión, pero lamentablemente tuvo que dejar esta sala para atender otras iniciativas de su agenda. Primero que nada, agradecer muy sinceramente a la presidencia de Costa Rica por el privilegio que nos ha dado de unirnos a esta iniciativa Repositorio Mundial de Libre Acceso para Tecnología de Salud para la Detección, Prevención y Control y Tratamiento del COVID. Ahora, reconocemos el papel rector de la OMS como principal organismo especializado en el sector de la salud, así como las funciones que le competen en cuanto a la política sanitaria de conformidad con su mandato. Observamos con preocupación el ciclo vicioso de la pandemia y sus factores de riesgo, ya que aumentan la pobreza, mientras que la pobreza contribuye a aumentar las tasas de las enfermedades transmisibles, lo cual amenaza la salud pública y el desarrollo económico-social. De ahí que damos la más cordial bienvenida a la iniciativa de Costa Rica. Como sabemos, la pandemia afecta a las personas de todas las edades, sexo, raza e ingreso, a los pobres, a los que viven en situación de vulnerabilidad, en particular en los países en desarrollo, ya que soportan una carga desproporcionada. Existe un claro reconocimiento a toda la comunidad internacional de que ningún país, por sí solo, puede salir adelante, solo unidos podemos enfrentar las pandemias en forma exitosa. Es un honor, reitero, para Chile participar de esta iniciativa a la cual le atribuimos la mayor importancia. Muchas gracias, director general. Thank you. Thank you, Your Excellency, for your statement. And Your Excellencies, thank you for laying down a collective vision for how the world can deliver life-saving health technologies to tackle COVID-19. Global solidarity will accelerate science and expand access so that together we can overcome the virus. Until everyone is protected, the world remains at risk. I know you have busy schedules, Your Excellencies, so I will just say thank you to all once again, President Alvarado and President Piñera. Thank you so much. And now I will make the rest of my uh, remarks. Next week, one of the most important World Health Assemblies will take place since we were founded in 1948. 
I'm looking forward to greeting and working with leaders from across the world to ensure that together we optimize the COVID-19 response and build back stronger health systems. Over the past few months across the world, we have shown that when countries implement a comprehensive strategy, they can effectively contain and suppress the spread of the virus while minimizing the impact on lives and livelihoods. The pandemic has shown again, and in the strongest way possible, that investing in health is not just the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. There is no trade-off between investing in health and your economy. Health is an investment in our collective future. Funding quality health for all doesn't just save lives. It means children are healthy and can go to school, people can go to work to earn a living, and societies and economies are both stronger and more sustainable. Yesterday, WHO released the policy brief on gender and COVID-19, which encourages countries to incorporate a gender focus into their responses. It includes six key asks for governments. First, when recording cases, collect both age and sex disaggregated data. Second, prevent and respond effectively to issues of domestic violence which have been exacerbated by the pandemic. Third, encourage availability and access to sexual and reproductive health services. Fourth, protect and support all health workers, approximately 70% of whom are women. Fifth, ensure equitable access to testing and treatment for COVID-19. And finally, six, ensure responses are both inclusive and non-discriminatory. To maximize effectiveness and ensure that no one is left behind, tackling the pandemic requires a gender-responsive, equity-oriented, and human rights-based approach. This evening, WHO will release a scientific brief on multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. In the past weeks, reports from Europe and North America have described a small number of children being admitted to intensive care units with a multi-system inflammatory condition with some features similar to Kawasaki's disease and toxic shock syndrome. Initial reports hypothesize that this syndrome may be related to COVID-19. It's critical to urgently and carefully characterize this clinical syndrome to understand causality and to describe treatment interventions. Together with our global clinical network for COVID-19, WHO has developed a preliminary case definition and a case report form for multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. I call on all clinicians worldwide to work with your national authorities and WHO to be on the alert and better understand this syndrome in children. I will repeat this. I call on all clinicians worldwide to work with your national authorities and WHO to be on the alert and better understand this syndrome in children. I thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Tedros. Also, thanks to our special guests who were with us today. Uh, we will open the floor to questions. Just before that, to remind you that we have a, uh, two uh, 
guests that are not usually with us here. That's uh, Dr. Mariangela Simao, uh, who is Assistant Director General for Access to Medicines and Health Products, and Mr. Derek uh, Walton, who is a legal uh, counsel. We will uh, try to uh, have as many questions as possible, and that's why I will ask you to be uh, very concise and one question per person. So if, uh, if we are... Uh, Okay, so uh, we are just trying to put the system up to make sure that uh, we get everyone uh, online. Okay, first question comes to uh, Jim from uh, Westwood One. Jim, please, uh, if you hear us, uh, unmute yourself and you have a floor. Hi, thank you very much. Uh, good evening, I guess, where you are. Thank you, Tarek. Uh, thank you, Chris. Thank you, everyone. My question happens to be about this Kawasaki syndrome-related uh, thing with COVID-19. Uh, it, it can't be a coincidence, obviously. There's some sort of connection. What do we know so far about this connection between this inflammatory syndrome and COVID-19 in children? So thank you for this question. I can start and, and uh, perhaps others would like to supplement. So this um, syndrome, it's, we're, we're calling it multi-system inflammatory syndrome, um, is a, a condition that has, was alerted to us from our colleagues in the United Kingdom a few weeks ago, two weeks ago. Um, and it's a very rare condition um, which is causing an inflammatory disease uh, in, in young children. Um, what we've done with that information is that we've discussed this with our global clinical network, which is a group of clinicians um, across the world who are dealing with patients for COVID-19, and specifically talking with our pediatricians who are part of that uh, global network. Um, and in doing so, asking who has seen this in their countries, where they have seen it, uh, how often they have seen it, what this syndrome actually looks like. Um, and in doing so, uh, raise the alert among this global network. Um, we've heard of additional reports uh, in, a, in a few countries, including the United States, including Italy. Um, and so we're learning uh, that it seems to be a very rare syndrome, but we need more information. And we need more information collected in a systematic way because uh, with the initial reports, uh, we're getting a description of what this looks like, which is not always the same. And in some children, they've tested positive for COVID-19, but other children have not. So we don't know if this is associated with COVID-19 or not. So what we've done is through our clinical network uh, and together with our, our partners is put together a case report form. So this is, this is a data collection tool uh, in which clinicians can use to collect standardized information so that we could better understand what this disease looks like, um, how we could better uh, develop treatments uh, for this. Um, and that's important. So, so far, we understand that it's rare, um, but we are hearing more and more reports about it um, because people are on the lookout. So as the Director General has said, um, and as we've said, that we need clinicians to be on alert for this, to look for it, but also to ensure that we collect standardized information so that we can better describe what this is um, and so that we can, we can develop better treatment. Thank you very much, uh, um, Dr. Van Kerkhoff, for this answer. And as Dr. Tedros said, we will have a scientific brief on this. Uh, let's uh, go to Michael uh, Bosjukki from uh, CNN. Michael, can you hear us? I can hear you loud and clear. Thank you for taking my question. Um, I'm Michael Bosjukki, contributor to CNN Opinion. And just quickly, I think I speak on behalf of all of us when we uh, express our gratitude for your forthrightness with these uh, press conferences. They're very helpful. Um, may I put this question to you? Uh, at the 70th uh, WHA, the Russian Federation presided over the forum for the first time, as you know. And at the time, the Minister of Health said it was, quote, an acknowledgement of Russia's achievement in developing its health system, unquote. And yet the Russian Federation is now registering the second highest caseload of COVID-19, 262,000 cases plus as of today, 10 to 13,000 on average being added every day. And uh, death rates are suspiciously low. Sorry, it, uh, I think it's over 2,000. Um, just quickly, uh, the question will be coming. <laughs> the head of a doctor's union in Russia told me among the sick and dead are many, many doctors 
and frontline healthcare workers who are being forced to work without PPE. They're stressed and being forced to go to work. Some reports of doctors mysteriously falling out of windows. And just quickly, a former U.S. ambassador to Russia I interviewed told me over the past 10 years has been a wanton disruption of the healthcare system with hundreds of hospitals closed. What is your assessment of what is going on in Russia? Since day one, you've advocated very forcefully and passionately for healthcare workers, and surely this is a situation where WHO can find a voice. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. And if it's really possible to have a shorter questions for others, thank you. <clears throat> well, maybe longer questions, get shorter answers, maybe work the way to go. <clears throat> Uh, thanks for the question. I, I think, like all systems around the world, or many systems around the world, uh, uh, <clears throat> when you see that uh, rapid rise in cases, uh, systems can struggle to cope with that caseload and with uh, adapting to that and adjusting and being able to deal with it, uh, to deal with it effectively. Um, certainly from the perspective of the Russian Federation, they've been very good at ramping up testing and making testing more available. But it is clear in certain areas that the number of cases is stressing the healthcare system. Um, and there have been a relatively low number of uh, reported deaths. And we're looking at that with our colleagues in, in the Federation <clears throat> uh, from the perspective of the way deaths are recorded. And I think this is another issue we're seeing around the world. People are struggling with how to record the deaths. Uh, are deaths recorded as confirmed cases who die, or is the death recording related to a post-mortem diagnosis where a physician declares or certifies the death. And there's some confusion at times as to whether if someone dies of a heart attack and they had COVID, did they die from COVID uh, with a heart attack or did they die from a heart attack while having COVID? And if, if that's not done clearly, then you can miss COVID-19-related deaths. Uh, WHO has issued very specific guidance uh, around the classification of mortality related to COVID, and I point you to our guidance on that on our website. Uh, I did speak with uh, with uh, colleagues, uh, <clears throat> Dr. Smolensky and others at the Rostov-Predenazor uh, earlier today, because we are interested in understanding more of the surveillance and how it's been done in Russia, and particularly how mortality has been recorded. I'm not aware of the, the issues you raised regarding PPE. We'll certainly look into that. It is not appropriate for frontline staff to be operating without <clears throat> uh, adequate personal protective equipment and adequate training. But again, we have seen that happen all over the world, tragically, uh, and we will do all possible to support our colleagues in Russia to ensure that that uh, situation, if it exists, does not persist. Next question uh, is coming from uh, our Geneva-based uh, colleague Bayram, who works for Anatoly News Agency from Turkey. Bayram, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Thank you very much. I have a short question for Mr. Dr. Tedros. That, uh, Mr. Tedros, uh, do you think uh, the initi initiative uh, today on open access to vaccines and drugs against COVID-19 can get the support of President Trump? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I cannot answer that question. I think you better ask um, uh, the president. Um, that was a short question, short answer. Now uh, we go to uh, Bianca Rottier from uh, Globo from Brazil. Bianca. Hi, Tarek. Thanks a lot. Can you hear me? Yes. Thanks. Um, uh, yeah, I work for Brazilian TV, Globo and Globo News, so I'll make the question in Portuguese. Eu, eu acho que os senhores devem lembrar o Mike Ryan aqui sobre a troca de ministros da saúde no Brasil e depois de um mês só no cargo, o novo ministro já pediu demissão e ele tinha posições diferentes do presidente Jair Bolsonaro em assuntos como o uso da cloroquina o chamado isolamento vertical, com apenas alguns isolamento e inclusão de saúde e beleza e academias de ginástica entre os serviços considerados essenciais. Eu não espero, por parte do OMS, uma resposta sobre política 
naturalmente, mas eu gostaria de saber qual a orientação em relação a esses temas que têm gerado tanta dúvida e têm deixado os brasileiros completamente perdidos. Então, cloroquina, isolamento vertical, salões e academias de ginástica como serviços essenciais. Muito obrigada. I don't think the, the question <clears throat> is clear. Um, from the perspective in Brazil, we've seen the increase in the number of cases, and, and in, in general, we've seen an increase in the number of Central and, and, and South American countries. Uh, and I think this has been a factor in <clears throat> many large federated states. Uh, the Director General has, I think, said this many, many times. Uh, regardless of the effectiveness of the health system, what's really crucial is that there's coherence cohesion uh, and across party, all of government, all of society approach, uh, especially in large federated states where that's communities need to hear a consistent message from leadership at all levels. Uh, that message needs to be clear and, uh, and governments need to walk the talk uh, of those messages. So I think all countries have struggled and this is not a phenomenon uh, unique to Brazil. It is difficult in the face of a major crisis to maintain that cohesion, to maintain trust with society, to ensure that governance is driven by science. Um, and these are the factors, uh, the behaviors, <clears throat> and the ethos that drives a perfect, uh, not a perfect response, but a, a good response. No response is perfect. It's very difficult to look at any response around the world and say that anyone has got it completely right. But those who've got it better have been those countries that have really worked on a cohesive, clear uh, communication with population, simple messages, and uh, an all-party and all-of-society approach. Uh, thank you very much. We have a couple of reporters we did not have in the past. So we have uh, Vince Chadwick from Devex. Vince, uh, are you online? Vince Chadwick? Yes. Hi. Um, I, my question is about the initiative um, uh, from Costa Rica and Chile and how, if at all, that will be addressed at um, the World Health Assembly next week, please. Uh, well, there is a, you all know there is a resolution being negotiated for the World Health Assembly which contains several uh, access-related uh, issues, access to health products. So we expect that some, some of the issues that are being part of the call to action, uh, Costa Rica call to action, are addressed in the draft resolution as it is, like, for example, the, the ensuring equitable access, uh, supporting of COVID-related knowledge, lessons learned, experience, best practice. These are part of the resolution as it is at the moment. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Simao, for this answer. Now we go to Lisa Schneering from Sidrap News. Lisa? Thanks for taking my question. I am just wondering what the situation is in the Middle East. It seems like cases are steadily going up there and, um, you know, we track that every day and seems um, just wondering how you would characterize that. I understand every country has a different situation, but it would be good to get your comments on that. Thanks so much. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I can begin on that. The, the DG may wish to add. Um, there are a number of uh, different dynamics in the, in, in, in the Middle East, and, and the numbers have been relatively stable in the Middle East, but there have been in some increases in the Gulf countries. Uh, but uh, worryingly, we've seen, uh, for example, uh, increases in cases in places like Yemen. We've seen the introduction of disease into camp and displaced populations uh, in, uh, in places uh, like Iraq. We've had at least one case in a refugee camp. So, uh, and, and also we've had cases in, in Syria. The, the difficulty uh, in, in many of the Middle Eastern countries 
Uh, and there's a huge contrast in the Middle East between countries that are relatively wealthy and well-provisioned in terms of healthcare, and then countries in which we have huge conflict, fragility, and vulnerability. And uh, the, the situation, the risks, and the potential impact of this disease is very different in all. It is exceptionally difficult to run uh, essential health services in many countries, particularly in the likes of uh, Yemen, Syria, and, and Iraq. Um, and uh, the UN is working with governments and partners for years now to try and sus to sustain those essential services. It is all the more difficult then to respond effectively uh, to the arrival of the disease uh, in, in many of these uh, situations. Many of the countries are fractured with different zones of control and different health authorities, so often in conflict, uh, and WHO and its partners have to walk, work across lines, across front lines, work cross-border, and it's, 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 it's a very, very dynamic situation. It's a very sensitive situation and one in which uh, we have to... Uh, try our best to serve those uh, who are, are most vulnerable. Uh, if we take the case of, of Yemen, uh, there's a, a very worrying situation emerging in terms of the number of cases uh, in both the north and the south. Uh, and WHO has been working um, <clears throat> very, very hard in Yemen despite these difficulties with our UN partners, where we've repurposed 26 EOCs uh, across the country, 10 operational in the south, 13 in the north. We've established with the government four COVID hotlines. <clears throat> we've repurposed 300 rapid response teams, which were trained uh, for, for cholera. We need about 1,000 of those teams with two to five staff per team. These are the contact tracing teams, the teams that go out and look for cases and do that public health work we're always uh, talking about. Most of these teams are mobile. These are 202 district mobile teams in the north, 131 uh, in the south. Um, we've already begun rapid response trainings and clinical management training with a large number of clinicians, nurses, and doctors. Uh, and established uh, screening at points of uh, screening at points of entry. Uh, we've supported the repurposing of four functional central public health labs in Aden, Sana, Sayum, and Thais. Uh, we've trained 28 lab technicians in the diagnosis using these rapid and PCR-based tests. Uh, we've deployed over 7,000 tests. Uh, 3,500 in the north, uh, 3,200 in the south, and we have another 30,000 on the way. Uh, we created 19 isolation units, 16 are in progress, 3 are completed, and we've trained 92 frontline uh, workers to staff uh, those units so far. Um, and uh, uh, that list goes on. In terms of operational support, uh, we've provided 1,000 ICU beds, 417 ventilators, and then, as I said, another uh, uh, 50,000 tests are, are in the pipeline. Uh, we're refilling nearly 12,000 cylinders of oxygen per month, uh, distributing defibrillators, ECG machines, IV pumps, pulse oximeters, and many other things. Now, that sounds like a very long list, and it is a long list, but I can assure you, moving that type of material in this situation, training health workers in this situation, doing surveillance in this situation, contact tracing in this situation, is difficult, uh, stressful, and, and dangerous work. And the DG has called for it. The Secretary General has called for it. We need health for peace. We need peace for health. It is going to be very difficult to contain this virus in settings like this, uh, having to operate in conditions like this unless we get a more peaceful environment to do this. <clears throat> Again, Tedros has said no one is safe until everyone is safe. We need to make the people of the Middle East, particularly those in fragile and co conflict-affected uh, situations, uh, safer because that will make uh, everybody safer. We're also working across a number of Gulf countries on issues related to migrant workers, and Maria may wish to comment on that. We are concerned about migrant workers who live mainly in dormitory-like situations. We've seen the impacts of that in places like Singapore. We thank Singapore, the Gulf countries, and South Africa for working with us on this issue. Maria has just uh, finished some uh, in discussions with uh, those partner countries today. She may wish to update you.
So to add briefly, yes, we uh, another worrying trend um, in the Middle East are uh, increasing case numbers in dormitories um, where many expat workers live. And in a number of countries across the Gulf states, um, a large proportion of the population that live there are not from, are not from that country. And so today uh, we had a preliminary teleconference between several countries and our Eastern Mediterranean uh, regional office, as well as some colleagues from Singapore, to exchange and to share experiences um, to, to learn from each other about the outbreaks that are happening in these settings. Um, they're very similar conditions, um, and the, the fundamentals of what need to be done in each one of these closed settings are the same. So it was a, it was a very good opportunity to be able to exchange and, and learn from one another uh, to see how these outbreaks could be brought under control and so that we could prevent them from, from further happening. And we hope to have more uh, teleconferences like this. Um, I think one of the things in this pandemic um, and in all epidemics, uh, the value of, of, of WHO and our partners is to bring people together um, so that uh, what, what they're going through um, and how they are dealing with it uh, can be shared um, and each can learn from each other on that. Uh, next question is for Health Policy Watch. Uh, we have Grace online. Grace. Uh, Grace, can you unmute yourself, please? Yes, hi. Um, thank you so much. Can you hear me? Yes. All right, thank you. Um, so thank you for taking my question. I just wanted to ask for a little bit more clarity on the uh, Costa Rica initiative. Um, what is the difference between this and the ACT accelerator, and uh, who, like who, who has been supporting this initiative so far amongst the mem member states? Thank you. Thank you for the question. Uh, first of all, this is the this is complementary to the ACT accelerator because it provides a, an operational framework for not only sharing knowledge, data related to COVID technologies, but also uh, the opportunity to, to do a repository on uh, open licensing, uh, intellectual voluntary licensing. We are uh, expecting um, an increase in the, in the offers of voluntary license through the medicines patent pool and other uh, licensing mechanisms. The medicines patent pool has, for example, expanded its mandate already. This, its board has approved expansion of mandate to increase, to include COVID products and, and Unitaid, who, which is the main, the main funder of the patent pool is the, uh, has also approved uh, the expansion of the mandate. Uh, so it, it, pro it will provide uh, an opportunity for member states, for industry and research uh, and ac academics in general to, to create this, uh, use the momentum, the solidarity momentum to create a pool of knowledge and a pool of, uh, of licensing. Uh, member state, the reason why this is only a pre-launch today, because there still we have uh, several member states we, uh, which are in negotiation with Costa Rica and required a little bit more time to, to finalize the, the call to action. And this is the reason why uh, they were, we didn't do a, a, a full launch today, but this is expected to happen in, the, in, in two weeks' time. And we will have member states from all regions coming in. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Simo, for this answer. Uh, now we will go to uh, Pien Huang from uh, National Public Radio from the U.S. Uh, Pien, can you hear us? Hi, thank you for taking my question. Um, so yesterday, WHO published a paper in BMJ, which gives a worst case scenario of 190,000 deaths across Africa in the next year. That's bad, but it's much lower than a worst case scenario of 3 million deaths that a UN report projected last month. So the assumption now is that the virus will spread slower and have a lower mortality rate in Africa. I wanted to ask what has changed in our understanding. Uh, thanks for the question. Um, I have to admit I haven't read that paper, um, but uh, a reduction of deaths, but still saying 190,000 deaths is, is still a pretty high number. 
Um, and, and I understand that this is a, a modeling analysis. And we know that when we do these estimates, um, these are very important for us to help um, plan and to help us prepare and to get countries ready for um, how to build the workforce. How many contact tracers do we need? How many clinicians and, and nurses and medical professionals do we need? How many beds do we need in, in particular ICU or oxygen support, ventilatory support, um, treatment centers, et cetera? And these scenarios that are estimated, uh, the, the models that, that make these estimates are really helpful for planning purposes. But we also know that there are tools that we have that we could prevent these numbers from becoming realities. And that's, the, for me, one of the most critical values of these models is to ensure that we take the right precautions, um, we put the right emphasis um, in these interventions where they need to be done so that these numbers do not become reality. Yeah, and if I could um, just uh, maybe add... Uh, the, while the numbers in, 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 in Africa are, are uh, well below the rest of the world, um, and as testing rolls out, we may find more and more cases. It's also been clear in other regions that we've seen a, uh, a, a potentially long period where the disease establishes itself, and then a, a particular moment comes when the disease takes off more exponentially. That time is not uh, well determined. But we are seeing, you know, increased activity over the last week in, in, in places uh, like Gabon. There's had a 153% increase of cases uh, in just a week. Uh, Zambia has equally had a, a large increase in cases. Chad has increased by over 100%. Um, uh, Benin has increased by over uh, 200%. Now, the numbers remain low, but what's concerning is the trajectory, <clears throat> the direction of travel of the curve. So we need to be exceptionally careful at this point not to underrepresent the potential impact of the disease, while at the same time recognizing that we must maintain other essential health services. We must be extremely sensitive to the fact that... Uh, that uh, lockdowns or very extreme public health and social measures aimed at stopping the spread of COVID-19 have a deep impact on lives and livelihoods. So we have to find um, a balanced strategy that manages the, the risks of the disease against the risks to lives and livelihood. And that's something that we've said since, since the beginning. Uh, we've been very, very clear. A comprehensive strategy is not a comprehensive lockdown. A comprehensive strategy is a strategy of surveillance, finding cases, uh, testing, isolating, uh, using quarantine, um, uh, caring for cases, educating communities, providing access to personal hygiene, uh, uh, practicing physical and social distancing where that can be done, uh, and the use of other measures to, to reduce transmission of infection. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, high-impact lockdowns that shut down society entirely. And I think all uh, many countries around the world, but in particular African countries, are grappling with, with this dilemma, how to control COVID-19 while maintaining other essential health services. UNICEF has spoken about this and the likely excess mortality in children that may occur unless we're delivering immunization, unless we continue uh, to deliver food. Henrietta Four has been very clear on that. David Beasley from the WFP has spoken about the potential uh, issues related to food and hunger as a result of the shutting down of food chains or the loss of food production. So uh, I think... Uh, in terms of how Africa and African countries deal with this, and again, the Director General may wish to speak, the African Union have very much come together with the comprehensive response plan at the political level. It's great to see that political leadership. I think we're seeing a lot of African leaders step forward and working very closely with our regional director, Chidi Mueti, on trying to come up with strategies that are adapted to the social, economic, and circumstances of countries. We have issued guidance, uh, very clear guidance, on how to adapt the public health control measures that we advise to low-income settings. Uh, and we're working very closely with countries at the country level. We have a WHO country office in every uh, country in Africa uh, and are working uh, uh, with our uh, resident coordinators, the UN system, uh, and with uh, ministries of health and other parts of government to try and ensure that we get maximum control of COVID-19 
while preserving essential health services. The Director-General has spoken about the potential impact on TB, on HIV services, on immunisation uh, and other things. And this is a delicate balance uh, and it does require help, it does require assistance. In order to be able to do these two things, governments in Africa need support, they need financing. We thank the World Bank for providing financial instruments and others to help them do that. Uh, there are, every country in, in Africa now has a, a government national action plan for the containment of, of the disease and we call on all donors and, and, and friends of Africa to support those national action plans to ensure that they're adequately financed and to ensure that vulnerable, pop, especially vulnerable populations within African countries, particularly refugees and displaced persons, uh, are not left behind uh, in this process. Um, thank you, Dr. Ryan. And next question is uh, for Gabriela Sotomayor, uh, writing for Processo. Gabriela? Hello, Gabriela? Take the question. Do you hear me? Yes. Ah, voy a hacer mi pregunta en español. Muchas gracias. Um, con respecto a, a esta resolución que estaban comentando, que se está discutiendo, y que tiene elementos de la iniciativa de Costa Rica. Me gustaría saber, eh, doctor Tedros, si es vinculante esta resolución, porque si no, ¿cómo es que va a hacer usted para evitar una guerra por la vacuna y por los medicamentos, si sobre todo sabemos que los más poderosos casi siempre son los que ganan? Muchas gracias. Thank you. Um, in the resolution that um, Dr. Maria Angela indicated earlier, uh, some components of what the President of Costa Rica suggested is there. Um, and of course, um, after the resolution, um, you know, it will be up to the countries to uh, follow whether they stick to the resolution or, or not. Uh, but normally it's not um, binding. It's a general understanding to move, move forward. And all countries who signed into the resolution are expected to uh, implement it. Uh, but I hope with, um, you know, strong political commitment from leaders, that's what uh, the president of Costa Rica is now pushing, President, president Alvarado, uh, with more political leaders uh, buying in, uh, the chances of its implementation will be uh, higher. Uh, so uh, part of it will be uh, in this resolution, uh, but the rest I will be um, going to be discussed in other, other uh, fora. And the launching on May 29, the call to action will be another very important milestone that can help us to mobilize political commitment and uh, help with the implementation of what will be agreed, but with the continuation of the dialogue uh, on the rest of what the president had already uh, proposed. Uh, we'll now go to United News of India, and we have Ajit with us. Ajit, can you hear us? Uh, Ajit, can you press unmute, please? Yeah. Is it okay now? Yes, now it's okay. Am I audible? Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, my question is just a short technical question. I wanted to understand that if inflammatory syndrome is there, like Kawasaki syndrome and other syndromes that uh, you have observed, so is it uh, that risk increases COVID-19 inflammatory syndrome? So thanks for the, the question. Um, we, we know so far uh, very little about this inflammatory syndrome. We are hearing reports 
uh, about this from a number of countries. Um, we're very grateful for clinicians coming forward and sharing it, as much detail as they can about the patients that they are seeing with this syndrome. Um, but as I mentioned before, what's really important right now is to determine how many of these children actually have this syndrome. We've given it a name, but we haven't, haven't actually described fully what the syndrome is. So what we've done is we put out a, a case definition, which, which describes um, what it might be, what, what conditions, what illness, uh, what, what symptoms this, these children may have. And we need to look. We need to uh, have clinicians use this case definition to determine how many children fit that definition. And then we need uh, specific data collected from each of those patients so that we could better describe what this is that we're seeing. Um, right now, um, we have um, the U.S. CDC, the European CDC, uh, WHO, um, a number of countries are on alert for this. We need all countries to be on alert for this and for clinicians to look out for this, what appears to be a very rare syndrome. And we need to understand if the syndrome is associated with COVID-19 or not. Um, as I mentioned before, some of the children um, have not tested positive for COVID-19, while others have. So um, right now it's a bit of a confused picture. Although more information is coming, we need that information to come in a standardized way so we can describe what the syndrome is and if it is associated with COVID-19. And I might just add, yeah, the things like uh, Kawasaki syndrome and uh, toxic shock and other syndromes, very uncommon, but there there is a background incidence. That it it happens uh, in in all in all populations, but at a very very low rate. Um, and it's a it's a little like those of you who follow polio. We use a syndrome called acute flaccid paralysis to detect all children who have an unusual paralytic illness, and then we test all those children for polio virus, and only in a very small number of them do we find the polio virus. But that's the way we find the polio virus for eradication, is by looking for a particular syndrome or a collection of symptoms. And in this case, we need to look at this collection of symptoms and then look at what's causing it. It will not all be caused by COVID-19. Uh, another, um, I think, important point is, as the number of cases of any particular disease grows to a very large number, you start to potentially notice much rarer syndromes. So you may not notice um, the disease emerge in a small group of 10 or 20,000 cases, but if you get to 90 or 100 or a million cases, then what is a very rare potential side effect or, or, or consequence of the infection can become apparent. Uh, it doesn't mean that the disease is changing. It doesn't mean that the disease is changing in kids. What it means is when you get a very large number of children with the disease, you will see a very rare occurrence happen. And in a small number of children, you don't get a chance to see that. So it's very important to reassure parents out there that this, is not, this does not represent a difference in the way this disease causes disease in children or the difference in severity or a change in the way the virus is behaving per se. What it most likely represents is a rare syndrome that may be associated with COVID-19 that we can observe when we have so many cases around the world. And I think that's important. It's very important we pursue it. It's very important we understand it. But it's also very important that parents and children understand that, uh, that this is not reflecting a fundamental change in the way this virus infects children. Um, also, I did mention in a previous presser, this is a new disease. When new diseases cross the species barrier, they very often don't have what we would call a primary target organ. They very often can infect, and we see this respiratory syndrome, which we can recognize, people short of breath with pneumonia. We've also observed cardiovascular-type syndromes. In other words, uh, effects on the heart, effects on the, on, the, on the blood system. We've seen effects uh, on, on the brain and, and on the neurologic system and, and reports of, of those diseases in older uh, people as well. So, um, and what we don't know yet is whether those rare things that happen are associated directly 
with the virus and the virus uh, uh, directly attacking the cells and those organs, or are we seeing also uh, the result of the immune response to the virus? And in many emerging diseases, we see both happen. The virus itself can cause damage, and sometimes the immune response to the virus itself can cause damage. That's very much what happens in Ebola virus. Many people, people for example, the bleeding associated people see or have seen on the TV associated with the Ebola infection, it's not the virus that causes the bleeding. It's very often the immune response to the presence of the virus that depletes the capacity of the blood to clot. So when a person bleeds, then the bleeding continues. So again, we need to sort out, uh, number one, as Maria said, to what extent is COVID-19 associated with this rare syndrome? To what extent is this a direct effect of the virus? To what extent this may be related to the immune response to the virus? And what's causing what? And it's really important that we understand that because that's the way we can develop countermeasures and therapies to reduce the impact of uh, this disease, especially in kids. Um, thank you, Dr. Ryan. One, maybe maximum two questions. We go to Dominican Republic, to Diario Libre, and with us is Ambar Castillo. Hola. Hola. Bueno, gracias. En algunos médicos y algunos países como Brasil y Bolivia han aprobado el uso de la ivermectina para tratar el COVID-19. A pesar de que la Agencia de Alimentos y Medicamentos de Estados Unidos no lo aprueba, pues no hay estudios concluyentes sobre la efectividad de este medicamento en humanos. Me gustaría saber cuál es la opinión de la Organización Mundial de la Salud al respecto y cuáles son actualmente los medicamentos recomendados por la entidad para tratar la COVID-19. Gracias. Um, I will start. So um, there are a number of treatments that are under clinical evaluation or clinical trials um, for the treatment of COVID-19. Um, none of those are yet approved for, for, for um, treatment. Um, there are hundreds of clinical trials that are underway. And the reason we need to wait for the results of these studies is because they are evaluating how these medicines, how these drugs work. Um, in terms of either preventing infection, preventing someone from progressing to severe disease, preventing death, um, and how safe they are. Do they have any side effects? Um, and the clinical trials that are underway um, need to have enough people in them to be able to determine whether or not they are safe and effective. Um, and right now, uh, WHO has launched uh, the Solidarity Trial, um, which is a clinical trial um, focusing on some uh, drugs, some therapeutics, to look at whether or not these are safe and effective for uh, COVID-19. Um, there are more than 2,500 patients enrolled in this multi-site clinical trial. And the value of something like this um, at the global level is that you could bring together um, patients from different hospitals across the world. Um, and you can have enough patients to be able to get to that answer faster. Um, and it will take some time before uh, we have uh, full answers to which treatments work. But right now, we don't have any uh, approved treatments for COVID-19. Uh, the treatments that are being used um, are for, for symptoms. Um, and some countries um, are evaluating different uh, therapeutics under these clinical trials. Yeah, and uh, just just add there, I think, uh, what... Uh, what uh, what uh, Maria has said, I think that the trial designs we have in place are very nimble and they allow other drugs to be added in as needed and uh, that means we can move forward faster and again we thank the countries who've committed to the solidarity trials in particular but there are other trials out there uh, which also uh, need to be uh, need to uh, need to be supported. Uh, I think it's also important to understand that there are many potential drugs that can kill a virus in a test tube, and that's what we call in vitro. It means that you can actually kill a virus by directly applying the drug to the virus gene. You can observe how it interferes with the virus function. It's a very different thing to take that drug and then put it into a human. Um, and uh, therefore, the difference between a drug's effect on a virus out of the body and then that drug's capacity to affect the progress of the virus in a body is very different and that's why trials are very important 
And it's really important, and this is what's happening more and more around the world. People are trying older drugs against the virus and seeing what might work. They're also trying new molecules and seeing what might work. When they find drugs that might work in vitro, then they look for any evidence, observational evidence uh, out there that might suggest that the drug has an impact. And then you design the trials in which you introduce the drug safely and in a way that you can uh, ensure that if the drug is safe and efficacious, you can begin to use it. But also, if there's a signal that the drug is not safe or not effective, you can avoid using it. That's the principle of randomized control trials. <clears throat> and there's a very, very well-tested process of doing that. So it's really important that we encourage innovation. We encourage people to be looking for solutions. But then, as those solutions potentially become available, we need to put them through the proper process in the interest of safety, in the interest of efficacy, and in order to make sure that we first do no harm. Thank you very much. I think we will conclude the press conference uh, with this uh, last question. We will have an audio file available um, uh, shortly and the transcript posted. Uh, tomorrow we will continue to uh, provide you with latest from uh, our regional offices and our country offices on the work WHO is doing on COVID-19. I would like to thank interpreters who were with us today and to wish everyone a very nice weekend. Yeah, um, I hope we are still online. Um, on Saturday and Sunday we will have um, uh, the third edition Walk the Talk. As you remember, we started it uh, three years ago, so we were supposed to do the walk the talk, run or exercise in Geneva uh, a day before the assembly, that's uh, next Sunday. So we're keeping the tradition, but this time uh, everybody will hopefully join us from their houses. Uh, this year it will be special because it will start from Manila, and um, it will stretch up to the Americas and through uh, Geneva. Um, we will also have a special event uh, tomorrow, uh, kick-starting actually the um, um, Walk the Talk in Geneva tomorrow with uh, my uh, colleague, the president of the International uh, Olympic Committee. Uh, we will sign a memorandum of understanding this is as part of um, the healthy uh, populations uh, approach. And uh, the MOU, the signing of MOU between WHO and the International Olympic Committee will also uh, help in kick-starting the um, Walk the Talk tomorrow, but a new dawn, a new partnership to invest in healthy uh, populations so I would like to invite all to join us in this very uh, important uh, event tomorrow and join us in our third edition of Walk the Talk, Health for All. And uh, see you uh, tomorrow at around 11 a.m. Geneva time. Thank you so much. <laughs>